0: Thank you so much for inviting me. What a fascinating set of presentations. Um, For somebody who's trying to make change happen, this kind of analysis is invaluable. And in fact, while I was listening to uh, the presentations, I was considering what that kind of forensic analysis would make of Dignity in Dying's campaign in the future, once assisted dying is legalized. Because of course, I I think it will be. I've I've approached my commentary by looking at the parallels um, between what the points that were raised in the presentation and Dignity in Dying's campaign. So what what was true then and what is true today. Um, And to be clear uh, Dignity in Dying is campaigning for a change in the law so that terminally ill uh, patients, adults with six months to live, uh, who are mentally competent, Will have the, the choice of an assisted death, uh, a healthcare professional assisted death in this country rather than having to go overseas for it. So, in Richard's presentation, he said that the scale of petitioning shook the British elite. Um, and that is, is really what Dignity in Dying's campaign is partly, at least in part, trying to do, and has been probably most successful in doing. So we have um, activists who number well over 50,000 now, and the extent and the quality of their correspondence with members of the House of Lords, peers, was key in terms of the second reading of the Private Members' Bill, Lord Faulkner's Bill, that went to the House of Lords last July. Uh, The scale And trying to to sort of set out the outrage in terms of patients is is key to to what we're doing. And you probably saw the the media coverage, or you may have seen the media coverage last week of Jeffrey Spector's death going to Dignitas in Switzerland early for an assisted death, and the reaction from the media. The media are are, are very uh, warm to this kind of debate. Richard also talked about benefiting from allies, well-placed allies in the establishment, and that's been absolutely critical for us. I think that any kind of grassroots campaign cannot succeed without that. Um, So I'm very minded of that. That, in fact, the decriminalization of suicide itself in 1961, which was at the point which assisted suicide was criminalized, was key. And it's it's a very important um, lesson in influencing the then Conservative Home Secretary, Rab Butler, made sure the bill was given enough time to get through and facilitated things behind scenes without actually being apparent or supporting the bill publicly in any way whatsoever. Obviously, that was slightly different for the Labour Home Secretary, Roy Jenkins, who's very much associated with those progressive changes in legislation around abortion and homosexuality in the 60s. Um, and for us, of course, Lord Faulkner. There are many others, but Lord Faulkner is the obvious sort of public example, and he's done a fair amount of backroom maneuvering, I can tell you. Like slave resistance, patient demand for choice is genuine. It's not something we're manufacturing. 82, there's a, we did a recent poll, the biggest ever poll, it's done of, of 5,000 people, and 82% of, of people Uh, would like to have change for dying adults who are suffering unbearably, who are mentally competent in this country. Uh, The vast majority of people in the UK want change on this issue. People want choice and control at the end of life. And again, you you may have seen the recent um, parliamentary and health ombudsman's dying without dignity report. And it it demonstrates uh, the current scale of suffering at end of life Uh, in this country. And I'll go on to say a bit more about why that is now and the demographics around that and why that's such a critical part of why our campaign's important and how how it's achieved some success. The Equal Marriage Campaign succeeded because it redefined the terms of the debate. There's no doubt about that and I've spoken to some of the key architects of that campaign around those issues. So, There was a key bit of research that Stonewall did that proved that anybody who um, was opposed to equal marriage was seen, again, by the vast majority of the population um, as out of touch. And that feeling was stronger in younger cohorts. So basically, that feeling was crystallizing. It wasn't going to go away. There was a clear sense. And David Cameron's take on that was, was it was a very good symbolic issue to detoxify the Tory party. He knew that he couldn't allow the Tories to be seen as out of touch. They had to modernize. And therefore, equal marriage was the ideal uh, policy for him to put the weight of government behind. And that bill succeeded because it was a government bill and it had enough time uh, because it was a, a, a government bill. We've started this process, the process of changing the terms of the debate, but we've got a lot further to go. So um, we were a kind of key part of the idea and brokering the funding for something called the Commission on Assisted Dying. And again, I was looking back to the Wolfenden Commission around um, homosexuality as as something that, that led into that. And that considered how assisted dying legislation could work. So effectively, it turned the debate from why into how and that was a critical move forward it led to the, of course the safeguarded model that's codified in lord faulkner's private members bill but there's a lot further to go i mean M- parliamentarians in general but particularly mps are very risk averse creatures and um, our opponents uh, mantra of slippery slope is very powerful the risk of unintended consequences is incredibly powerful for parliamentarians And that's why they are more inclined to keep the status quo. Um, And this is despite the reality that the scrutiny that assisted dying legislation brings is far safer. This was pointed out by the Supreme Court last June. Um, I can't remember what you referred to them as, Richard. It's something about coalescence. I've called them coalitions anyway, but... Coalition's are key, and our opponents are very good at this. They've got the Care Not King Killing Coalition, which is a very powerful coalition of faith groups and palliative care doctors. Um, as an aside, doctors are generally not in the vanguard of social change, in my view. Um, but if you, again, if you look at the campaigns around or formation of the NHS or the contraceptive pill, then again, doctors, have not been leading that change. In terms of pro-choice coalitions and Dignity in Dying stance, we're very much at the centre, in the middle ground of the assisted dying, of the so-called right-to-die movement, with others uh, wanting to go much further and Dignity in Dying being quite unpopular with some of our allies as a result. I think that's fine if they're calling for, for much sort of wilder, policy aims than we are I think that just makes us look more reasonable but they can get very angry about it and I I thought Richard touched on this point but I was interested in the way that history generally smooths over uh, these arguments between people in campaigning around legacy and ownership You know, who's going to be the William Wilberforce of the Right to Die movement? It it, it blends those, those blind alleys that you go down as a campaigner. The bickering, you know, the stuff that is part of people engaging on this. And that's, I mean, I'm sure Friends of the Earth people will say that, that it's very, that's very much part of campaigning is trying something out and wrestling around what works. Abigail talked about the powerful force of demographics on change. And I'd say there's two forces that have brought the issue of assisted dying high onto the public agenda now. This is why this is important, particularly now. And the first is pure demographics. So in 1951, only about 5% of the population lived beyond 85. But by 2005, over 30% did, and so it goes on. We no longer die of the diseases that we would have, that would have killed us 10 years ago. Medical technology prolongs life, and that obviously that's a huge benefit, but it's also meant that mortality itself has become very medicalized. And the downside to that is it can make dying a pr- very prolonged and very unpleasant experience where many feel they've lost control about what actually makes their life worth living in the first place. And dying people want to choose how much suffering to endure and for how long. That is a state of affairs that just wasn't present 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but it certainly is now. And you can see that in terms of the grain of change, the campaign is in line with the grain of change. That will only increase. That's been key. And the second point, I think has been a profound shift in public attitudes. People increasingly want and are encouraged to seek more choice. They're prepared to accept more responsibility for decisions about their lives. And they increasingly reject any claim by the state and churches to have moral authority for those decisions. the view is for the vast majority if you can exercise personal choice without detriment to others, we don't accept that we should be prevented from doing so. And that has been a, a key point. I mean, none of the papers explicitly mentioned the importance of religion in public life. Um, and sometimes, but not always, in protecting the status quo. But it's key, it's a very, very powerful lobby. Um, If you look at the extent of parliamentarians with faith, strong faith, it's much much greater than in the would be represented in the general public. And this the the, the faith lobby is as powerful in opposing assisted dying as it was for abortion uh, decriminalization of homosexuality and more recently equal marriage. But then the converse is, but when someone high-profile and religious breaks ranks, as in the case of the former Archbishop of Canterbury, George, George Carey, on assisted dying, that's enormously significant. Um, in the same way that anti suffragists seized on Queen Victoria's comments, in the same way that our opponents seized on David Cameron's opponents' comments to oppose the assisted dying campaign. There's one considerable asset that we have that, again, also hasn't been mentioned in terms of other campaigns and our predecessors haven't used to the extent that we have, and that is a legal strategy. Lawyers tend to be very open to logic. They have to be. And our Purdy case, the Debbie Purdy case, forced the Director of Public Prosecutions to clarify that those who compassionately assist suicide are very unlikely indeed, effectively won't be prosecuted. The Supreme Court said, as a result of the Nick Linson case last June, that they could declare the Suicide Act incompatible with the human rights law if Parliament doesn't act. That's exactly what Canada has done. The Canadian Supreme Court has struck out their legislation, which is based on ours. And there, is a, there are lots of key cases going on around the world, South Africa, New Zealand, again on similar legislation where individuals or groups of individuals use the courts to break this very outdated legislation and to force change. But ultimately, I think we're all clear that change has to come through Parliament and it's parliamentarians that we have to convince. So. I think that what the work that Dignity and Dying has done in the last few years has certainly moved assisted dying from the um, from the margins to the mainstream. Um, an ITV reporter said to me um, last week when we were talking about the Jeffrey um, case that she said, "We've been talking about this for a very long time. When's when's something going to happen about it?" And I thought, "Gosh, that's interesting that." She feels we're at that point where where change should happen, and this has been in the public milieu for a while. I'm very conscious we're not there yet. We're not there at tipping point yet. And I'm also conscious of what Lucy said at the beginning about momentum can be very easily lost in these campaigns. And that's exactly what happened with my colleagues in France. They had the perfect situation when Francois Hollande came to power. They they had uh, public support. They had a prime minister who said he was going to legalise, but he chose to legalise equal marriage first. He was surprised by the outrage by the Catholic Church, and he's lost political power, so he no longer has the leverage to secure this political change for them. They're in a very difficult situation as a result, having almost been at the point where they would attain change. They've lost it and had to, to regroup. So for Dignity and Dying of course, people are, are increasingly taking the law into their hands. So one Briton is going to Switzerland every fortnight to have an assisted death. And for every one person who goes there, 10 dying people who don't want to go there, can't afford to go there, can't go there because they're too ill to go there, have to have a do-it-yourself suicide in this country. So I'd end up by saying, um, watch this space really. Um, because the lessons from history are there for us. But at the end of the day, I think that campaigning is more of an art than a science. And I also think that good luck plays a very big part too. Thank you.